Turn to Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 to 30 again. I would just like to remind you of that scripture as we uh, go into it. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the promise of this text. And although, Lord, uh, sometimes it doesn't bring us much comfort when we're in the midst of trial and suffering and affliction, we recognize that your promises are sure and you never go back on your word to us. Help us, Lord God, now to have insight into these scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we looked at this text together, I quoted something that Dr. Joe Stoll, former president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, once said. And he said, all of life runs unsettlingly close to the ditch. And how many find that to be true? Maybe even this week, right? I'll bet that many of you have found that to be true this week, just because it's on our minds. The reality of the downside of life and uh, the fact that eventually we all encounter trouble of some sort moved even our childhood friend, Dr. Seuss, to warn us and our children of that pervasiveness. In Oh, the Places You Go, he writes these words. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to great heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on and you'll be left in the lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Unslumping yourself is not easily done, is it? Sometimes we encounter, what we encounter is a lot more than just a slump, however, as we heard in some of the prayer requests this morning, and it requires a lot more than a little unslumping. Gerald Sitzer is a man whom I would consider to speak with credibility on this subject in a terrible and tragic automobile accident involving himself, his wife, their four children, and his mother. Gerald watched as, watched as Linda, the woman to whom he'd been married for two decades, his beloved third-born daughter, Diana Jane, and his mother who had given birth to him and raised him, were swept away from him in a senseless collision involving a drunk driver. As he ran from one to the other, taking pulses and giving mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying and trying to calm the living, he realized that he was plunging into a darkness from which he, in his own words, might have never again emerged as a sane, normal, believing man. Three generations gone in an instant. In one moment, the family that he had known and cherished was absolutely obliterated. In his book, A Grace Disguised, which details his experience of grief and eventual growth through this awful tragedy. Sitzer relates that after the accident, he received many cards and letters which, instead of giving advice, expressed shock and anger and doubt. Why you, they kept asking, as one person commented. Your family appeared so ideal. 
This tragedy is a terrible injustice. If it can happen to you, then it can happen to any of us. Now no one is safe. Fact is, no one's immune. Yet for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8 clearly states that we are indeed secure, safe in the Father's unchanging love. Amen? The way that we go through the varied, sometimes painful events of our lives makes all the difference in the world. We simply don't always have the freedom to choose the roles we play and the events that we encounter in life, but we can choose how we're going to go through it and respond to the things that we've been given. That's the turning point. The turning point is choice. We must choose for God in whatever circumstances, despite the fact that he seems distant and unconcerned, because he's not. As Gerald Sitzer testified, he said in his book, instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. It's not what happens to us that matters as much as what happens in us. God wants to do something inside your souls, no matter what you're going through. And in the process, he can and he will cause all these things that we go through to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Remember what we said last week, God has no process without good as his purpose. Now, last week I suggested to you that understanding that changes everything. And for believers, it means that we must think outside the lines of the way that we normally view the distressing circumstances in life. That's why I believe that this text this morning warrants taking the time to look closely at the purposes for pain and suffering and the tragedies of life and what the glorious results are when we trust in the power of God to bring his good purpose to bear on our lives. We need to start thinking in a whole new way, a non-habitual way that we normally think by appointing, appropriating, I should say, what Romans 8, 28 through 30 really says that we may find that things can change in us. As I said last week, there can be spiritual stability even in the midst of our emotional confusion. Romans verse uh, chapter 8, verse 28, again, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Knowing that truth about God surrounds us, as we saw last time, with security in at least four ways. Let me remind you of them really quickly. Number one, because God has a plan, we can experience certainty in the midst of life's randomness. We know that God causes, it says. Scripture provides for us these mental anchors that, we can, that can steady us when it seems like life is making no sense. Number two, because God holds all power, we can embrace his sovereignty in the midst of life's chaos. We know that God causes all things. Absolutely nothing can come into our lives except by God's permission. Number three, because God is a process, there exists continuity in the midst of life's disharmony. He works these things synergistically together for our good. Romans 8, 28 says he's putting the puzzle together. And then number four, because God has a purpose, we can expect prosperity in the midst of life's adversity. That's spiritual prosperity, by the way. Paul says we know that God causes all things to work together for good. The word good there in the original language means profitable. 
generous, something that has benefit to us. And again, if that statement is true, God has no process without good as his purpose, these things that we go through that we don't enjoy have benefit for us. But how can Paul say that, you say? When you and I are neck deep in hurt and in pain and you don't think you'll ever feel better and you're asking things like, how can this tragedy be construed as good, Lord? You think that Gerald Sitzer asked that question a few times about what happened to him? You may be asking God, what good is a terminal illness? What, what possible way can this trial that I'm going through be profitable to me well, I think C.S. Lewis speaks for us all when he, in the midst of grieving over his wife's death, said these words. He said, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? <laughs> Got a good sense of humor for a philosopher, huh? Friends, I'm not trying to give you romantic ideas about your pain. Neither is God. It's scary. Even though I know God is good, it scares me to death to think that I, in order for, to get to the point that he wants me at, that I might have to, to be conformed to his image, the image of his son, that I might have to go through some serious seasons of suffering in life. That's scary. But the point is, is that we never know how our pain is good for us at the moment that we find ourselves in it. But when we choose to believe God and trust him through it, it will become clear in the end, either in this life or the life to come. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp calls it the theology of uncomfortable grace. Nobody talks about that. It's all about grace, but nobody talks about God's amazing grace. Nobody talks about the theology of uncomfortable grace. And that we need to encourage one another with this theology of uncomfortable grace because on this side of eternity, he says, God's grace often comes to us in uncomfortable forms. Again, the ultimate example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus knew of the eternal good that it would bring, he, in fact, still trembled, agonized, and sweat what seemed like drops of blood over that whole process. Our Savior. So when we're tempted to cry out, why this, why now, what for, what next, what gives, Lord? We must remember that our anchor must be firmly embedded in the truth that God is good. God is good even though our circumstances are not. You ever hear that whole mantra go back and forth? God is good. And the response usually is what? All the time. All the time, God is good. Well, that's nice. It just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? Say that to somebody like a Gerald Sitzer. No, on second thought, don't. Pray for them. You'll be able to say that to them. You see, thinking in a non-habitual way about pain and suffering means putting to rest at least five prevalent myths about the problem of pain and the role that God plays in the midst of all of that. Myth number one, pain equals punishment. You ever think that? 
Although sometimes God does discipline his children with difficulty, Proverbs 3.11 and Hebrews chapter 12, especially verses 5 and 11, talk about that. Difficulty is not always discipline. Not always. Sometimes it is. And for those who are in Christ, absolutely none of it is punishment. No amens to that? If you're in Christ, pain is not punishment. Punishment for your sin, past, present, and future, if you have received Christ by faith as your personal Savior, has already been poured out upon Jesus at the cross. Amen? Pain does not equal punishment if you're a Christian. Number two, the myth number two, pain is unproductive. Scripture clearly says otherwise. We looked at this last time in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, this verse, this scripture, but let me read it again. Not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings. Notice that. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Now this hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then James chapter 1 and verse 4 but you must let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's the reason. Pain is not unproductive. Pain, according to the scripture, is productive in the Christian's life. It can be. Myth number three, pain indicates spiritual failure. How many of you heard that one? Don't buy that lie. It's a false theology, and it's very prevalent today. Very prevalent today. The scriptures are crystal clear that some of God's most faithful and spiritually mature people have suffered ill health, trouble, tragedy, and the trauma of every single kind that you can imagine. Paul, as a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, read about the things that he suffered. Was that man a spiritual failure? Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 27, same deal. And then Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he suffered. What about Jesus? He was crucified for crying out loud. Was he a spiritual failure? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 says this, This suffering is all part of what God has called you to. Christ, who suffered for you, is your example Follow in his steps. That's what Peter had to say about it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May I also remind you of the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. As a matter of fact, uh, you read verses 35 to 39 this week if you have a mind to specifically. I won't go into it now because of time purposes, but... Read those verses in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 39, and you'll find out all these heroes of faith suffered greatly in their life. Someone once said that heroes of the faith are not exempt from trouble. Myth number four, pain is not good. In our current text, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, militates against that statement. Psalm 119, verses... uh, 67, 71, and 75 say this, I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. The suffering you sent was good for me, 
for it taught me to pay attention to your principles. I know, O Lord, that your decisions are fair. You disciplined me because I needed it. So there's this thing going on in Scripture that most people today want to just ignore, that pain is sometimes good for us. Doesn't seem like it at the time. But God has purposes beyond our knowledge sometimes. Myth number five, pain is incompatible with a God who is all-powerful and loving and good. Now, this is the one you hear all the time, right? It's probably the one that plagues us most of all. It's the most prevalent misconception there is about unbelievers, among unbelievers. The, the truth is, is that God's goodness and God's power are not in contradiction to the problem of pain, but as someone as well said, they are instead the very realities that offer hope and a solution in the midst of pain. And you say, now how can you say that? Listen again to C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. He said, the terrible thing is that a perfectly good God is in this matter hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. But, he says, suppose that what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless, unquote. You get that? What C.S. Lewis came to understand is that there's something to our benefit in pain or grief or suffering, a suffering that although may bring tears to God's eyes, he also still allows. Someone said that pain and trouble are Satan's graffiti scrawled across the face of God's glory. And I believe that it is Satan's purpose in his use of pain to diminish God's glory. Satan uses pain, suffering, and the trials we experience to deface and defame the glory of God. Yet God overrules it in his sovereignty. You believe in God's sovereignty? If so, raise your hand. Good. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. God overrules it in his sovereignty. He uses it for our good. Again, the ugly symbol of the cross is our example. This instrument of brutal and cruel and inhumane torture has become the ultimate symbol of hope wherever you see it. Dallas Willard truly nailed it when he said that Jesus so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. Unquote. It has been. What Satan meant as a scaffold of death, God used as a doorway to life. So what do you think he can do with your situation? In the wake of all of this, there are identical purposes for the things that we suffer according to Scripture. While the following that I'm about to list for you are certainly not exhaustive in the Scripture, let me just list a few of them. And I'm indebted to a number of different resources for compiling this list, but we won't go through every single scripture on this list. They'll be on the screen for you if you're taking notes, but I really encourage you, 
this week to look at this if this is something that you want to dive deeper into. Number one, suffering can verify. These are all things that can happen if we allow God to have his way with us. Number one, suffering verifies our faith. It verifies our faith. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says that trials test and purify us. Number two, suffering confirms our sonship. Again, that's Hebrews 12. But God disciplines his sons. If you're not disciplined by God, then you're an illegitimate son, it says there. Number three, suffering produces endurance. And we just read some scriptures on that. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, touch on that again. Number four, suffering teaches us to hate sin. Read the Psalms of David. He cries out against his own sin and the sin of his enemies in the imprecatory Psalms. Number five, I bet you found this to be true. I have in my life that suffering clarifies our priorities. It does, doesn't it? And you're going through some deep, deep trials, superfluous things that you normally attend to in your life all of a sudden fade into ex out of existence, don't they? Number six, suffering identifies us with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 2, well, it's on, the, it's on the screen, but especially Romans 8, if you're still in Romans 8, just back up to verses 16 and 17, look at what it says there. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And it would be great if it just stopped there, wouldn't it? But that, read on, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering identifies us with our Savior. Number seven, Suffering makes us prayerful and fosters dependence on God. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, how Paul dealt with that. And then number eight, suffering deals a death blow to pride. When we deal with our circumstances we cannot, and we cannot control it, it shows us who really is over the grand scheme of things, right? Kind of sets our pride aside that we can control everything in our lives. In order to keep Paul from a problem that he struggled to resist, conceit and pride, God gave him another problem that he couldn't solve in his flesh. So the more we grow in Christ, said Paul Miller, the bigger the cross needs to become, not smaller. The longer you're a Christian, the greater your capacity for pride grows. That's true, isn't it? Number nine, suffering enables us to encourage others. In 2 Corinthians 1, we see that. Paul talks about the comfort that we can give to others from the comfort that we've received in our affliction. Number 10, suffering can benefit unbelievers. Because the way that you and I deal with our trials as followers of Christ, it speaks volumes to the world about the power of the gospel. People are watching you. They're watching how we deal with our trials. Philippians 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, Paul says, has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Chains for Christ. 
Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So even Paul's imprisonment, which was bad for him, had a good effect on the kingdom. Number 11, suffering causes us to desire heaven. Isn't that true for believers? When we're going through it really deeply, I've heard people say it a lot, I just want to go home. I would rather be at home with the Lord. And number 12, suffering draws us closer to God. It can. Sometimes if people are not thinking in a non-habitual way, it can drive them away from God for a time. But suffering can draw us closer to God. Let me give you an example, a letter from the late Mother Teresa of Calcutta to a Cheyenne, Wyoming man arrived, get this now, 17 years late. 17 years late and just at the right time. On the very day that this man learned he had serious health problems. Gilbert Ortiz, a retired barber, had written to Mother Teresa in 1981 to make a small donation and ask for prayers for others in need. Mother Teresa wrote back almost immediately, but Ortiz never received that reply. 17 years later, in March of 1998, the 70-year-old Ortiz had just returned home from the doctor's office, where he had been told he had failing kidneys and an inch-long aneurysm on his aorta. He and his wife Emma entered their home in silence, contemplating this serious, serious news. Ortiz said, I was feeling bad. I was down, man, really down. Then his wife Emma went to the mailbox and found two letters there. One dated November 28, 1981. It was from Mother Teresa. The second was from the superior of the missionaries of charity, who told Ortiz that Mother Teresa's response to his letter had been found at the Order's house in New York in February. So it had been sitting there all this time. Quote, although the content of the letter may not be important or relevant to you now, nearly 17 years later, we thought that you might like to have the letter since it bears Mother's signature, unquote. Where moments before Ortiz had felt despair, now he was filled with joy and peace. When I read the letter, I hit the roof, he said. Maybe I hit heaven. What made the letter so special is that Mother Teresa, who died September 5th in 1997, told Ortiz these words, quote, Pain, sorrow, suffering is but the kiss of Jesus. A sign that you have come so close to him that he can kiss you. May God give you all the courage to accept your cross with resignation and love in union with the passion of Jesus. God bless you, unquote. 17 years late and at just the right time, he got the letter. Ortiz says that while his health is failing, now I don't care what happens to me. He says, if Christ wants to take me, I'm ready to go. I find it interesting that although Mother Teresa wrote those words 17 years earlier, God saw to it that Gilbert Ortiz received them at the exact right time that he needed to hear them. 
And that shows me that we can find spiritual stability even in the midst of our emotional confusion. Because God has a plan, we can experience certainty in the midst of life's randomness. Because God holds the power, we can embrace His sovereignty in the midst of life's chaos. Because God is a process, there exists continuity in the midst of life's disharmony. Because God has a purpose, we can expect prosperity in the midst of life's adversity. And then this final thing, because God is perfect, we can experience clarity in the midst of life's obstacles. Probably the greatest biblical example of God causing all things together to work, for, work together for good in this life, in the life of his people, is the Old Testament story of Joseph. You remember that story? Genesis 37 through 50. If you never read the end of the story, you would have to conclude that Joseph's story was indeed tragic. But his story compels us to adopt the view that our own tragedy in life can be very bad a very bad chapter in what ultimately turns out to be a very good book. There's a bigger picture than what you and I see now. God is the author of this fantastic story, my friends. Your life and my life. And it's got a great conclusion for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? You know the story, right? Joseph was loved by his father, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, rose to prominence, was falsely accused, got thrown into prison, was forgotten for years. He interpreted a pharaoh's dream and became the second guy on the totem pole in Egypt. A famine occurs, his brothers show up, and unbeknownst to them, his original dream is played out that his entire family would bow to him. Everything falls into place, and we find out that through all of those tragedies, God had been at work putting all the pieces together for good. As you study the account of Joseph's painful circumstances, you find that eventually he came to understand with overwhelming clarity the God purpose behind the things that he suffered. He realized that God had been orchestrating this whole thing for not only his good, but for the good of his entire family and ultimately all of his people, Israel. Do you know what that means? It means that we can have hope. Because the same thing is true for you and me. If you're a child of God, he is sovereignly working all of these difficult circumstances of your life to bring about your good, and that good will likely spill over onto everyone around you in your life, not just for you. It ultimately means that you can trust him to work it all out. If you're dealing with a difficult situation in your life right now, or you've been for a long, long time, I want to leave you with just these three simple truths they're not original with me, but they are timeless in application. And we find this out through Joseph's life. Number one, your pain becomes explainable. Nothing happened to Joseph apart from God's sovereign will. And nothing will happen to you apart from God's sovereign will if you're in Christ either. Your pain, like Joseph's, is explainable. Number two, be purpose becomes visible. Purpose becomes visible. Just want to read you a couple of verses out of Genesis 45, just to show you that. Genesis chapter 45, in verses 4 through 8. This is Joseph's life. Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. This is at the end of the story, by the way. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for, watch this, God sent me before you to preserve life. He viewed everything from the perspective of God doing it. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times, Joseph attributes all of his suffering to God's will for a good purpose. He came to realize that, hey, this thing was in God's hands the whole time. I get it. I see what he was doing. God sent me here to preserve your life. And the apex of the whole narrative is found in Joseph's words, which serve as an encouraging commentary on the painful circumstances of our own lives. I call it the 50-20 principle. Have you heard it that way? The 50-20 principle. Genesis 50-20. Look it up. Genesis 50-20 says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Next time you're going through a hard time in your life, you don't know what the purpose is, and I've had those in my life, trust me. I went through a very long, hard period of time in the ministry just a few years ago, and I'm still trying to figure out what God did to, for good. I, I've Formulated a few ideas, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. Just remember, when you're going through something like that, remember, 50-20 principle. Genesis 50-20. See, Joseph's pain taught him that both his identity and his destiny rest with God and God alone. Amen? Who we are does not depend on our outward circumstances but on our relationship with a sovereign God who created us and gave his life for us. We belong to him. Amen? We have been bought with a price. We're not our own. And let me say this to you, my friends. He has more stake in what happens to you and me than we do. Pat Morley said it this way. We cannot fully know who we are until we know whose we are. We cannot fully know what our purpose is until we know who our purpose is. Now, you may be frustrated to the end of your limit because you don't know the why of your situation. Learn from Joseph. The why is that God is working out all things according to his good purpose for your life. Through the realization of God's sovereignty, Joseph discovered those three things. Number one, pain becomes explainable, purpose becomes visible, and finally, peace becomes possible. When we realize that the painful things that can happen to us can be superseded by God's good purposes, we can learn to forgive people who are involved in our pain. Why? Because it's not about them. It's about us. It's really about God and what he's doing in us. You can forgive someone who has been miserable to you involved in your pain, and be at peace with your circumstances. Because like Joseph, we can accept the fact that even though they may have meant it for evil, God ultimately overrules it for our good. Amen? That principle didn't relieve his brothers of their sinful behavior or their guilt. 
but it did free Joseph to forgive them and be reconciled to them. Genesis 45, verses 14 and 15. That's the whole part about the reconciliation where his brothers come in and he fell on their neck and he kissed them and welcomed them and peace became possible because Joseph was at peace with God. He had peace in his own life circumstances because he finally saw them from God's vantage point outside the lines in a non-habitual way, and that eventually resulted in his ability to be at peace with those who hurt him. Let me wrap it up with Gerald Sitzer comments on the accident that took his family from him. He said, much good has come from it, but all the good in the world will never make the accident itself good. I do not believe I lost three members of my family in order that I might change for the better, raise three healthy children, or even write a book, yet my soul has grown because it has awakened to the goodness and love of God. My life is being transformed. Though I have endured pain, I believe the outcome is going to be wonderful. My friends, life isn't fair. It's just not. Not in this world, anyway. And you don't want fair, by the way, either. Trust me, you don't want fair. God never said it was going to be fair, but for those who live by faith, for those who believe God and accept the raw truth of Romans 8.28, it is well, it is well with our souls. Amen? Because he is perfect, we can experience clarity in the midst of life's obstacles. God has no process without good as his purpose. Remember, because God is good, your life will not turn out like you planned. It'll turn out better. It'll turn out better. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this promise, this wonderful, hopeful promise of truth. Even in the midst of life's trials, we know you are God. And we bless you and worship you now. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.